Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is a rainy, stormy January 12th, 2023, and um, I'm going to talk uh, about breast cancer in a nutshell, um, which sounds crazy, right? To talk about breast cancer, well, you, you need uh, hours, plural, to do so, probably. But I did um, uh, an episode uh, some months back, maybe years back, who can tell, uh, called Sarcoma in a Nutshell. And I said, if you people like this, if you listeners like this, let me know that you enjoy this. I'll do more of these. And I didn't hear anything about it, positive or negative. Somebody sent me a, a message uh, on, on social media saying, hey, I, by the way, I really enjoyed that episode and that approach. I'd like to see more of it. But nobody else did. Um, and then lo and behold, um, some, like at the end of the year, I was looking at uh, what episodes did people have they listened to the most? And that was like in the top 10 all time was sarcoma in a nutshell. So I thought maybe people like this. So, all right, we'll do, we're going to do breast cancer nutshell. I have a selfish motivation and I, I may have students listen to this in class. Uh, and this is really geared big picture stuff. One of the, you know, so for learners. And I noticed a lot of pharmacy learners sometimes miss the forest for the trees. And by that, I mean, they know detail after detail after detail, but, but aren't able to put uh, the, those small details together into the larger uh, picture and really struggle with you know, that jigsaw puzzle. And um, that's uh, it's challenging, especially in breast cancer, because if you are trying to teach a learner everything they need to know to go day one and take care of breast cancer patients, uh, that, those instruction materials are going to be different year to year, uh, and they're gonna be different within six months even, uh, because of how quickly uh, cancer uh, drug information comes out and, and therapeutic options change with new studies. So this is trying to be big picture of stuff that probably will not change too much uh, year after year. So breast cancer in a nutshell, this is like the, this is the most common cancer diagnosed every year if you look at the cancer.gov numbers. Uh, estimated 287,000 and change cases a year, more than the number of cases of lung cancer a year, which is 236,000. The number of cases of lung cancer each year has gone down as smoking rates have gone down the last several decades. Um, by perspective, so you have almost 300,000 people, more than a quarter million people get breast cancer every year. The 99% of those are women, all right? 1% are men. So quarter million or more cases a year, 40,000 deaths a year. So as a, as a percentage, 40,000 deaths divided by 280-some thousand cases a year is a pretty low percentage, right? And in fact, almost 90% of women diagnosed with breast cancer will live five years. And yet, it is the second deadliest cancer among women after only lung cancer. It has to be the most prevalent cancer because... Women live with this for a long time, and there are a lot of long-term survivors from breast cancer. So you're going to see a ton of breast cancer as a healthcare professional. Risk factors for breast cancer we can put into three buckets. Ge genetics, estrogen exposure, or environmental. All right? So genetics, the, the prime example of this is a BRCA1 mutation that's inherited that confers a much higher risk of breast cancer in a woman's lifetime. BRCA2 has a higher risk, but less than BRCA1 for breast cancer. Uh, the more estrogen exposure you have in your lifetime, the greater the risk. Um, never having a child confers a greater life-term estrogen exposure. I, I'm guessing because um, th this data came from nuns uh, in the Middle Ages or so, that nuns had a higher rate of breast cancer. Um, 
because nuns never had kids. Nuns never had kids, so they never nursed or breastfed. And and that and breastfeeding is associated with a low estrogen state. Um, lots of other examples, you know, when you have your first period as a woman, higher risk of breast cancer. Uh, later starting menopause, higher risk of breast cancer. All of that has to do with lifetime estrogen exposure. Uh, now the environmental uh, or, or the nature side of risk factors are also a little bit tied to estrogen exposure. Obesity is a risk factor, especially in postmenopausal women for breast cancer. We believe that has to do with the fact that adipose tissue is metabolically active, producing estradiol or estrogen, which causes breast tissue to grow, and anything that causes tissue can, to grow can promote a cancerous environment. From a pathophysiologic standpoint, there are currently three things we look at on these breast cancers. Uh, does it express an estrogen receptor and a progesterone receptor, as most breast cells should? And does it have overexpression of HER2? So three markers. 75% of all breast cancers are hormone receptor positive, so ER or PR positive, and HER2 unamplified. Uh, you can break those hormone positive uh, HER2 negative patients into two categories, luminal A, luminal B, with one having uh, a higher uh, replication rate and a higher KI67 or key 67 uh, you have uh, breast cancer that can be triple negative. So no expression of the estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, no overexpression of HER2. There should be some HER2 on cancer cells. So if there's no overexpression, no estrogen receptor, no progesterone receptor, that cell is poorly differentiated, does not look like the surrounding breast cells, and that's more aggressive, and that's a basal-like cancer. And then we have our HER2 enriched cancers. So these cancers have not just the normal amount of HERB-B2, EGFR2, or HER2, I just said tomato, 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 really. Uh, so a whole bunch of HER2 uh, used to be a poor prognosis for breast cancer. Now because we have HER2-directed therapy in the Herceptin or Trastuzumab era, those patients do very well. And how well they do does is probably correlated to how much overexpression they have, and, and there are some... Some, uh, some case reports out there of women, even with metastatic disease that we thought was incurable, but because their cancer was only driven by HER2, are able to have long-term disease-free survival, off-drug therapy potentially cured. Now, the, these cells are typically cells from the ducts that would transport milk in the breast. These are ductal carcinomas like 75% of the time. The most common type after ductal is a lobular carcinoma. When we talk about cancer, we talk about screening lots of times, and there is a well-defined benefit to cancer screening for breast cancer mammography. Now, the magnitude of benefit is um, somewhat great. There are different recommendations that women should begin mammography screening at age 40 versus age 50. There's a really nice um, a paper in JAMA from 2017 that asked women, how much benefit do you think there is for mammography screening? These women thought that if you had 1,000 women, 160 would die from breast cancer without screening, and 80 would die if you screened them. In other words, the rate of, you know, the, the, you would go from uh, 160 deaths per 1,000 to 80 with mammography screening. What the data suggest is that without mammography screening, 5 in 1,000 will die. With screening, 4 in 1,000 will die. So you have to screen 1,000 women to prevent one breast cancer death. That's a pretty small magnitude of benefit, but that is standard of care uh, uh, 
in, in the Western world to do mammography screening. There are certain patients who are at higher risk for breast cancer, say those with a, a known BRCA1 mutation, who are not opting for prophylaxis and having their breasts removed. Um, there might be some higher um, resolution screen, like an MRI that's used for those patients. All right, let's talk treatment. With solid tumors, typically the most important treatment modality is surgery. That is the case for breast cancer. Um, that surgery can either be a mastectomy, where the whole breast is removed, or a lumpectomy. Uh, simply put, the bigger the tumor, the more likely a patient will need a mastectomy. Um, if, you, if a patient pursues a lumpectomy, if the tumor is small enough, it's less likely they'll need any, any reconstructive or cosmetic surgery. So say the cancer on the left breast, uh, the left breast still is likely to look a lot like the right breast if that is important to the patient. Now, when you remove uh, a, just the tumor as a lumpectomy, it is possible that microscopic tiny, tiny cancer cells you can never see on imaging have traveled elsewhere in the breast. So typically after a lumpectomy, those patients would receive radiation afterwards to prevent local recurrence. And with a mastectomy, usually local recurrence is not, or uh, adjuvant radiation is not needed. Now, I'm not a radiation oncologist. I'm not a surgical oncologist. I'm not a, re a breast reconstruction surgeon. So this is uh, my, again, big picture understanding for this. Uh, women, as I understand it, have some choice in this. Some may pursue a breast conserving approach and favor lumpectomy followed by radiation so they don't need surgery, where others will say, I've heard bad things about radiation and the increased risk of coronary artery disease, so let's do a mastectomy. And if we're going to take one, let's take them both and do the same type of reconstruction on both sides. But that's a decision that is made uh, locally between the patient and, and surgeon and radiation oncologist. Now, because 75% of breast cancers are hormone positive, they're well differentiated, they're like normal breast tissue, they are slower growing. So there is time to have a well-informed decision to be made about what type of surgical option to pursue. Now there are times, like in the same, say a triple negative breast cancer, that's a more aggressive disease, or disease that is very large, or maybe a spread of lymph nodes, that you actually pursue systemic treatment first, prior to surgery. So this gets us into chemotherapy. And do we use adjuvant chemo? So surgery followed by curative chemo? Or do we new adjuvant chemo followed by curative surgery? Um, I don't think there are great data that one approach is definitely better than the other, but there are some advantages to neoadjuvant chemo. They seem to be used for when they have large tumors and triple negative so that you can get systemic treatment right away for any areas of micrometastatic disease so they don't spread to be full-blown metastatic disease. Um, neoadjuvant chemo can also take a, a, a breast tumor that would require mastectomy otherwise, and if it shrinks enough, then maybe a lumpectomy can be done and then um, that can negate the need for a follow-up reconstructive surgery um, and, and plastic surgery, as you might say. Now, the drugs we commonly use for breast cancer, anthracyclines, taxanes are two of our most common drugs. Other active agents include 5-FU or capecitabine, gemcitabine, aribulin, ixabepalone, venorobine, lots and lots of drugs, cyclophosphamide. The very first chemo regimen for breast cancer was CMF, cyclophosphamide, methotrexate, 5-FU. Uh, commonly here in the United States, uh, one of the standard of care regimens would be anthracycline, so doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide for four cycles, followed by weekly paclitaxel for 12 weeks. We call that AC 
followed by T. Elsewhere, people may, pers may pursue um, an FAC regimen, so fluorouracil, anthracycline, cyclophosphamide, followed by taxane thereafter. Um, we could spend a lot more time on oncology pharmacy podcast talking about the pros and cons of, of these chemo agents, but those are the agents that we, we commonly give in the adjuvant uh, setting would be AC followed by T. In the metastatic setting, usually we'll, we'll pursue single agent chemotherapy treatment when that is necessary, which I'll talk about uh, momentarily. So if we take a, an early stage breast cancer patient, um, they get neoadjuvant chemo or adjuvant chemo. But not every woman needs chemotherapy. Many of these women that have small tumors are able to just have surgical resection. And if their disease is hormone positive, they'll receive hormonal therapy. And that hormonal therapy is usually in the form of tamoxifen, uh, which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator or an aromatase inhibitor. Uh, in premenopausal women, you could only do tamoxifen as monotherapy. If you used an aromatase inhibitor or AI in a premenopausal woman, you would also have to add ovarian suppression in the form of gossarelin or something like that. In the metastatic setting, uh, sorry, in the postmenopausal setting, aromatase inhibitors have some efficacy superiority to tamoxifen, but the key thing for, for beginners is the toxicity profile differences between tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors. So tamoxifen is anti-estrogen in the breast, that's how it works for breast cancer, but it's estrogenic in the endometrium, so it has a higher risk of endometrial cancer. It's estrogenic in the blood, so it has a higher risk of thrombotic events. It's also estrogenic in the bone, so it does stabilize and, and prevent loss of bone mineral density. Aromatase inhibitors prevent peripheral production of estrogen in postmenopausal women who are no longer making estrogen from their ovaries, but their fat tissue is. So it is very effective and even more effective in postmenopausal women for breast cancer. However, it does cause bone marrow density loss, unlike tamoxifen. It uh, does not cause um, the, uh, the risk of endometrial cancer or blood clots. And just like tamoxifen, these agents cause hot flashes and they cause arthralgias and myalgias. And especially for AIs, those arthralgias and, and muscle aches can be dose limiting and, and prevent women from doing at least five years of adjuvant therapy, which is our goal. Longer uh, may be better. Now, think about it. Usually when we do adjuvant treatment, adjuvant chemo is for three months, six months. We're talking adjuvant hormonal therapy for at least five years we want. And I think this gets at most of these breast cancer cases, 75% that are hormone positive, HER2 unamplified, are really chronic diseases. And, you know, for that reason, you will see women have a recurrence of their cancer. The latest I've seen is 19 years later after treatment, a 19-year recurrence of hormone-positive breast cancer. It very well may be that these are chronic cancers um, that, that are really tough to cure, but very easy to render non-problematic. Now, when, when breast cancer does spread and it becomes... Well, before we get to metastatic disease, let's talk about how we determine who gets uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy. In the past, we'd look at how big is the tumor? Um, how many lymph nodes has the tumor spread to? The, the bigger the size, the more positive nodes, the greater the risk of recurrence after surgery, that person needs chemo. We have moved away, as in a lot of oncology, from those clinical markers to molecular and genomic markers and looking at the genes inside the tumor sample. So a common example of this would be uh, the Oncotype DX, which, which looks at 21 genes. Some of those are reference genes, including HER2, um, ER and PR, and it gives a, a likely recurrence score. The higher the recurrence score, the greater the need for cytotoxic chemo. 
Uh, the lower the recurrence score, the less the need for chemo. And then you have a fair amount of women who are right in the middle, and they have, a, a, a say, a, an intermediate recurrence score. Well, if that person is really young, there's probably greater benefit to giving them cytotoxic chemo. If they're 85 with a lot of comorbidities and have an intermediate recurrence score, you probably would not entertain chemo. So the choice of chemotherapy at uh, in the adjuvant or new adjuvant setting is very individualized based on the, the patient um, and their comorbidities as well as their, their individual breast cancer risk. Now when breast cancer spreads, I like to think of it in three different categories. Bone only, metastatic disease, visceral metastatic disease, so liver, lung, etc., and then brain or CNS metastatic disease. Very Three different uh, phenotypes. Bone only disease, even in the metastatic setting, many of these women will live years and years and years. Um, uh, it's not uncommon for someone to have breast cancer spread just to the bones to live more than five years. A key supportive care feature for those patients is bone modifying therapy with a bisphosphonate or denosumab. Again, clinical pearl, if you do denosumab for a number of years and you stop it, you probably want to follow that with a bisphosphonate uh, because the, the antibody is going to be gone fast and the benefits will be gone fast after you stop denosumab. Whereas bisphosphonates are going to stay in the bone forever for the most part. Now, visceral metastatic disease is where you may have to switch from hormonal treatments to chemotherapy, uh, especially if you get to what we call a visceral crisis, which would be ascites from the liver, severe shortness of breath from lung disease or pleural effusion. You would need cytotoxic chemo in the metastatic setting for those patients. And then CNS metastatic disease has a very poor prognosis. Historically, metastatic breast cancer, many of those women could be treated just with tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor. I've seen patients with neglected masses on the breast for more than 12 months that are huge and fungating and smell. Six months of tamoxifen and the breast mass is gone, okay? It's a slow growing, it's a chronic disease. You can take your time with hormonal treatment. In the last uh, half decade, we have learned that adding cyclin-dependent kinase 4, 6 inhibitors like palbocycliv or Ibrantz improve the benefit uh, over in combination with aromatase inhibitor over aromatase inhibitor monotherapy. Um, there are some uh, some special considerations that are relatively new that we're still waiting to see how beneficial they are in the long run. That include the use of immune checkpoint inhibitors or drugs like pembrolizumab in triple negative breast cancer, both in the curative and metastatic setting. The use of PARP inhibitors like alaparib in germline mutated um, breast cancer. Um, we know there's some benefit to that. Uh, we know that um, in the neoadjuvant setting, adjuvant capecitabine after a whole bunch of chemo, if there's residual disease after surgery is helpful. Those are things that we have learned in the last five years. Who knows what we'll learn in the next five years, the next 10 years after that. So hopefully this has been kind of a, a big picture overview of, of breast cancer in a nutshell. That's the point. All right. Thank you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at PharmDetanib, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncofarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm-hmm.